The text for Pastor John's message this morning is taken from the Gospel of John, the 10th chapter, verses 14 through 16. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. As the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will heed my voice. So there shall be one flock, one shepherd. David Brainerd was born April 20th, 1718, in Haddam, Connecticut, 43 years before William Carey was born in Pollersbury, England. You know, perhaps, that Brainerd became a missionary to the Indians in New England and New York, New Jersey, but he died when he was 29 years old. The last 19 weeks of his life, he lay on a bed in the house of Jonathan Edwards and was nursed by Edwards' daughter, Jerusha, who was 17 at the time and loved David Brainerd very much and would have married him and died herself five months after he did at 18. Edwards was so deeply moved by this young man's love for God and sacrificial service as a missionary to the Indians that he undertook to edit and write his life and diary published in 1749. Forty years later, that book was picked up and read by William Carey in England. And Carey was so deeply moved by this young missionary's passion to reach the Indians of America that when he wrote his own epoch-making book called Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the salvation of the heathens, you find that book strewn with references to David Brainerd as his hero. And when William Carey got on the boat a year later after writing that book, when he was 32 years old, and headed for India on the Crone Princess Maria, what do you think he was reading to give peace to his mind? He was reading the sermons of Jonathan Edwards. In fact, he says in his journal, June 24, 1793, saw a number of flying fish today, have begun to write Bengali and read Edwards' sermons and Cooper's poems, mind tranquil and serene. Carey's book, The Inquiry, plus his 40-year career without a furlough, dying in India, had immortalized him as the father of modern missions. And the reason I'm pointing out to you this morning the connection between William Carey and David Brainerd is to make sure you know that the rise of the modern missionary movement happened in the milieu and the soil of sovereign grace. 
These were men, Brainerd and Carey, and the pastors who supported them, Jonathan Edwards behind Brainerd, Andrew Fuller behind Carey, men who loved the doctrine of unconditional election, who loved the doctrine of predestination and effectual calling and justification by faith and perseverance of the saints. And out of that sovereign grace soil grew the modern missionary movement. There aren't any other greater or more influential books outside the Bible that have promoted the modern missionary movement than the life and diary of David Brainerd and the inquiry into the obligations of Christians of William Carey. There are no more influential books and they came from the hearts of men who loved the things of which we've been speaking over the last four weeks. Andrew Fuller, you don't know him probably, his works are just now being republished by Banner of Truth Press in three volumes. He was called the faithful rope holder by William Carey. And he died in 1815. And when he died, the Baptist Missionary Society that he had founded to send William Carey came into turmoil. But if you knew the doctrine of Andrew Fuller, your heart would soar with me. It was based squarely on these grand truths of Romans 8, 29, and 30. It was out of this milieu that the modern missionary movement sprang. They were men whose orientation towards the Scripture was emphatically doctrinal. And the doctrine they cherished was the doctrines of sovereign grace. And so I hope you'll see that it's historically fitting and biblically necessary that a four-week focus on the doctrines of sovereign grace be followed by a great week of missionary thrust and a message this morning on a great missionary text. John 10, verse 16. And I invite you to... Look at this verse with me. John 10, verse 16. This has been, and I pray will continue to be, the great missionary text in the Gospel of John. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will heed my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now, to understand the missionary meaning of that verse, there are six observations from the context we must make. Number one, Jesus calls himself in chapter 10 a shepherd, a good shepherd. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. Verse 14, same words, I am the good shepherd. Shepherd, And I think what he's doing here is picking up the prophecy of Ezekiel, chapter 34, where God said, I will save my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them, and I, the Lord, have spoken. So the flock of God 
that's being spoken of in chapter 10 of John is Israel. The people of God chosen in the Old Testament. Jesus is the shepherd, the son of David. And he is going to separate between sheep and sheep. And that leads us to the second observation from the context. Namely, some of the sheep in the flock are his own and some aren't his own. Some Israelites are Israel and some are not, to use Paul's words. Look at chapter 10, verse 3 and 4 in the Gospel of John. It says, we'll begin in the middle of verse 3, He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, see that, his own, he goes before them. Or drop down to verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. In other words, not all the people in the flock of Israel belong to Jesus. Some are his own. He calls them by name. He leads them out. That leads to the third observation from the context. How comes it that some of the sheep are Christ's and some aren't? The answer given in verse 29 of chapter 10 is that God has given some sheep to his son. He says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my hand. Now, this is simply Jesus' way of talking about the doctrine of election. The father chose some and he gave them to me. That's why they're mine. Turn with me to chapter 17, verse 6, and we'll see this more clearly than in John 10, that the Father has taken some from the world and given them to the Son so that the Son can say, these are my sheep. John chapter 17, verse 6. Jesus is praying to his Father and he says, I have manifested thy name to the men whom thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were and thou gavest them to me and they have kept thy word. So Jesus can speak with great confidence that he has a sheep or or part of a flock. There are his own. The reason there are his own is because they were God's. God chose them. And God takes them and he gives them to the Son so that they might be saved through faith in the Son. No man comes to the Son unless the Father draws him. John 6, 44. No man comes to me unless it is given him by the Father. John 6, 65. The Father has taken sheep out of the world and now he presents them to the Son. The Son calls them by name and they come. And that leads us to the fourth observation from the context, namely, that having known who are his own, he calls them by name. Back to verse 3 of chapter 10. The sheep, in the middle of the verse, hear his voice and he calls, here it is, he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Or down to verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. 
So, just like Ezekiel says, he separates sheep from sheep by calling them by name. And his own sheep say, Oh, I know that voice. That's the voice of my shepherd. And I will follow him. And the other pharisaical sheep in Israel say, I'm not going to follow that voice. I don't like that voice. I don't like the what it says. don't like that gospel. Now, be sure that you see the thrust of these verses Being one of Christ's sheep enables you to respond to his call. It is not the other way around. It does not say that by responding to his call, you become one of his sheep. You can hear and recognize his call because you are his sheep. And the reverse is true. Look at verse 26. You do not believe, he says to some, because you do not belong to my sheep. That is a devastating statement that strips the unbeliever of his final boast to be a self-determiner ultimately of his destiny. Strips him of the last thing in which he might boast. Picture yourself now as a Pharisee listening to Jesus one day as he preaches and teaches all day long, and you're sort of hanging around out there on the edges of the crowd and listening, and at the end of the day, he closes his sermon and says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm meek and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. Come, come. And he casts his eyes out to the Pharisee. Come. And you stand there. Who does he think he is? I'm not going to join the tax collectors and Pharisees in this salvation that they call it. I have a will of my own. I can determine my destiny. I'm going to do what I please. And knowing what is in your heart, he makes his way through the crowd and he comes up to you and he says, "You, you think that you are determining your own destiny. Truly, truly, I say to you, The reason you do not believe is because you are not one of my sheep. There will be no boast before God at all. The fifth thing from the context is that not only does he call his sheep by name, he dies for them. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. In other words, those whom the Father chose to be his own, he also gave to the Son. And those whom he gave to the Son... The Son also called by name. And those whom the Son called, for them he laid down his life that they might be justified. Sound familiar? Sixth and finally, from the context, on the basis of this sacrifice, Jesus gives eternal life to his sheep. Verse 27, following. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. 
No one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now we have the whole picture. Those whom the Father chose to make His own, He also gave to the Son. And those whom He gave to the Son, the Son also called effectually by name. And for those whom He called by name, He laid down His life that they might be justified. And to those whom He justified, He gave eternal life and glory forever and ever. And nobody can snatch them out of His hands. The chain is unbroken. Do you see that what we've been unfolding is the structure of biblical theology? That's why you can find it everywhere. It's true. But just when we, in our deceptive hearts, begin to say, taking this pride-shattering doctrine. Hmm. I'm the chosen. We're the chosen. We're the chosen. Us. Here. Right here. Christ strikes in verse 16. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Watch out. Just when the Jewish disciples are beginning to feel, we're the true seed of Abraham. We're the true seed of Abraham. Strike! I have other sheep that are not of this Jewish fold among the Gentiles. Find them. Just when the Puritans in New England are beginning to feel that they're the new chosen people in New England, the chosen land. He strikes with John Eliot. I have other people and sheep who are not of this Puritan fold among the Algonquin Indians. And a hundred years later to David Brainerd, I have other sheep that are not of this congregational fold among the Susquehanna. And just when the particular Baptists in England 40 years later are beginning to freeze up in their hyper-Calvinism, he strikes again to William Carey and says, I have other sheep that are not part of this Baptist fold in India. Find them. And just when the mission agencies are beginning to think, ah, what a success, Churches planted on all the coastal regions of the world. He strikes to Hudson Taylor this time. I have other sheep that are not part of this coastal fold inland in the center of China. And to David Livingston, inland in the center of Africa. Other sheep that are not part of this fold. And just a few years ago, within the memory of many of you, when we were starting to feel, oh, we're finished. The colonial era is over. The church has penetrated all the political entities and countries of the world. He strikes again to Cameron Townsend. I have other sheep that are not in this visible fold. They are hidden among thousands of unreached people groups that don't have one single portion of Scripture in their language. Find my sheep. And he creates Wycliffe with 4,000 missionaries 
today. Where will he strike next? Right here. If we begin to feel self-satisfied as though we are it. We're the chosen. Every time a group begins to be ingrown, satisfied with its own number, indifferent to the lostness of the world, Jesus strikes with John 10:16. He has done it again and again and again throughout the history of missions. I have other sheep who are not part of this fold. This text is a great encouragement to missions. And I want to spend the last few minutes telling you four ways that it should encourage you to go to the frontiers or to engage your money and your strategy and your prayer for the frontiers. But let me first tell you why you need hope, why I need hope and confidence so desperately. We love to dream at Bethlehem. I love to wake up on Monday morning. I sleep a little later sometimes on Monday morning. I wake up on Monday morning. I say, what more can you do at Bethlehem? What's the more that you can do? Because frankly, I see 90 by 90 as a snap now, don't you? 37 people have already gone. And we've got five years left. It's a snap God has so honored our goal that something we went into with fear and trembling is now going to happen. It's just so obvious. What's the more he wants to do? What's he saying to us? What does it mean to belong to a Baptist General Conference that wants to double its missionary force from 100 to 200 in the next 10 years, to double the number of churches overseas from 606 to 1,200, to triple the membership of those churches to 95,000 in this decade of vision? What does that mean? It means we need hope. You need some strength so that when 1987 comes and 1992 comes and Satan attacks us with a vengeance, we hit the pits of discouragement. We won't give up. And John 10:16 is that hope. And let me show you four reasons why it is. First, it says that Christ has a people among those who are not converted. He has a people. See it? I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Now, there will always be people who say predestination. Got your attention with that word? Right? The doctrine of predestination makes missions unnecessary. And they are wrong. It makes missions hopeful. John Alexander, the former president of InterVarsity, spoke at Urbana 67. And Noel and I, madly in love at my junior year in college, were there together. And we were producing the daily uh, bulletin. And we sat, and I can remember just so vividly Alexander's powerful speech. He said, If I had believed in predestination 20 years ago when I entered the mission field, I could have never become a missionary. And I could just tell. Everybody there was saying, Yeah, right. And then he said, And today... After 20 years up against the hardness of the human heart, if I didn't believe in the doctrine of predestination, I could never be a missionary. And they got very silent. It is a hope-giving doctrine when the Lord Himself says, I 
have a people outside this flock. To prove biblically, that is, it's hopeful, look with me at Acts chapter 18. I want to show you the way the Lord Himself used this teaching from John 10, 16 to encourage the heart of the Apostle Paul. Here he is in Corinth. The poor guy's not married. He deals with lust, probably, just like many of you and me. He deals with loneliness and discouragement. And there he is in this wicked city. And he's ready to go home to Troas. And God comes to him in a dream and a vision and says, in verse 9 of chapter 18, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but speak. Do not be silent, for I am with you. That comes from the Great Commission. And no man shall attack you to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And that comes from John 10, 16. Doesn't it? It's just a perfect paraphrase of, I have other sheep in the fold of Corinth, outside the fold of Philippi and Thessalonica and Jerusalem. I've got them there, Paul. Be of good courage as a missionary. They may not have responded right away. They will. Second thing that makes this text hopeful. They are scattered, these other sheep. They are scattered outside the fold. Now, what, why is that encouraging? Well, look at John 11, verse 51 and 52. You'll see the parallel between these texts immediately, I think. Caiaphas has just spoken a word of prophecy. He didn't know what he was saying completely. And so John undertakes to interpret. And he says, He did not say this of his own accord, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Evangelism in the Gospel of John, is the ingathering of the elect, finding the children of God scattered throughout the world. Now, the point of encouragement here is they're scattered, it says. Scattered abroad in John eleven fifty two, They are not pocketed in America. They're not pocketed among a, a, a lively responding group in Brazil. They're everywhere. When John got to the end of the New Testament and wrote for us the last book, Revelation, here's the way he put it. In chapter 5, verse 9, he said, Thou wast slain and didst ransom men for God from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. That's what scattered means. There is no tribe to which you could penetrate as a missionary where you will not Find the children of God. And brothers and sisters, if that doesn't encourage you to be a missionary or in your missionary plans, what could? Third, the Lord committed Himself to bring these sheep. See that in the verse? I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must 
bring them also. I must bring them. He will bring them. Now, watch out. Don't become like the hyper-Calvinist particular Baptists in Carrie's day who folded their arms and said, Carrie, uh, when God wants to save the heathen, he will do it without your help. Now, where did they get that stupid notion? Not from the Bible. God will do it! But not without caring. Or you. He reigns in the church. And he sins. And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they're sent? Instead, what we ought to think is of the great prayer in John 17, 20, where Jesus prays, I pray not for the world, but for these, my own, and for those who will believe on me through their word. You see, today, when the gospel is preached, it is Christ calling his sheep. This morning, it is not John Piper merely calling the sheep. Jesus is speaking right now. If I am faithful to the Scripture... The Lord is speaking to you. That's what it implies in John 17, 20. And therefore, the sheep will hear His voice. Do you hear it? Is there anything happening in your heart right now that says, that's my God He's talking about. That's my shepherd He's talking about. He is summoning His sheep at this very moment. In other words, he's using an instrument and he'll use you tomorrow morning. Don't you ever draw the stupid conclusion from these doctrines that he will save his own without the use of means. For he has ordained to use prayer and evangelism and missions to get it done. And that leads us to the last point. They, these sheep, will come. See that in the verse? One last time we look at it. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will heed my voice. None of Christ's sheep will ultimately fail to respond to the gospel. And that's encouraging. What else will sustain you in the hard places of the world? when you're bumping up against the hardness of human hearts day after day, and like Adoniram Judson, not a convert for seven years, how do you keep on going? You keep on going because you believe in the sovereignty of God and that His sheep will heed His voice. And they are there. And He honors faithfulness. Let me close with the story of somebody who endured hard times. Peter Cameron Scott, the founder of Africa Inland Mission, started out in a very unlikely way. He went to Africa as a young upstart, just boom, he's gone, flattened by malaria right off the bat and sent home, sick as a dog. They didn't pop pills to solve malaria in those days. It was deadly. He recovered. Back he went, like into the flame, to preach the gospel in Africa. 
flattened by la malaria. Again, sent home. Now, put yourself in this young man's place. Wouldn't you say, I guess I'm not called. I guess God doesn't want me in Africa. Not Peter Cameron Scott. He goes to America, goes to Nyack, gets some training, gets ordained by A.B. Simpson, and goes again to Africa. This time he's as full of joy because his brother John is with him. And John falls dead right away. Nobody's there. There's no family. There's no church. There's nothing but the dead brother lying at his feet. He digs a hole, rolls him in, covers him over, and kneels down and dedicates himself to preach the gospel in Africa. Now, how does God respond to this faithfulness? He flattens him with malaria. And he's sent home. This time to England. This man is devastated. What does he do? He goes to Westminster Abbey, where the tomb of David Livingston is found, the crypt. And he kneels down in front of this tomb and he reads the inscription on the stone. Other sheep I have that are not of this fold. Them also I must bring. And he goes back to Africa with that inspiration and he stays and he founds a mission and we have people in that mission today. Brothers and sisters, we are the heirs of a great doctrine and a great God. Let's pray. Almighty God, put, I pray, a thorn in the cushion of these pews any time we begin to get comfortable. And put a great courage in our hearts to be people of mission here and on the frontiers. And grant, O oh God, that the passion of our lives might be the ingathering of the children of God who are scattered through all the world. In Jesus' great name, amen.